Good afternoon, everybody, or good afternoon here on the West Coast of the United States. And you might be in a different country or you might be watching this, I don't know, at 2 a.m. when you have nothing better to do. Uh, whatever our lives look like, as you can tell, I have, a, I have a guest with me. And these are the interviews that we do uh, at least once a week. Sometimes we do them uh, twice a week, depending on how we line up uh, our, our guests. But Dr. Stephen Porter, I want to thank you for joining us uh, today and uh, uh, talking about this very important subject that's been of uh, great benefit to me. One of the things that I like doing is going through the educational history of my guests and uh, speaking about that. Uh, so Professor Porter has a, a BA in Christian education from Biola University and an MA in philosophy of religion and ethics from Talbot School of Theology. One of the things here that I didn't know about him is that he has a, a master's in philosophy from Oxford, the University of Oxford, and uh, he studied under Richard Swinburne for that one. Uh, pretty awesome individual to study under when it comes to the philosophy. Two awesome individuals. And you did your PhD at USC uh, with the supervision of Dallas Willard, and that, again, is in philosophy. Uh, Dr. Porter, why don't you tell us kind of how that was? I mean, those are pretty intense uh, subjects uh, that you've studied. I think you specialize in, the, uh, in epistemology, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, tell us how that was just throughout your life. I mean, were you married? Were there kids involved? You know, what your family looked like uh, throughout that period of time and you kind of uh, how you stayed sane and what kind of advice you can give for those watching? Yeah, sure. Um... Well, the first thing that comes to mind is, is just to say that when I was doing my undergrad at, at Biola in Christian Ed, I, I, I wanted to be a youth pastor. And in fact, I was a youth pastor, a high school youth director at the time. And, and, uh, and through uh, uh, so, uh, some different circumstances, I, I began to have a bit of my own uh, kind of crisis of faith and um, had, never, had never heard about apologetics or maybe had heard about it, but it, I'd never really engaged it in any sort of way and didn't know much about evidence for the truth of Christianity. And then also the high school students that I was uh, ministering to when I was going through my own uh, crisis, um, a lot of them weren't Christians. And, um, and so they were asking me hard questions. And I realized that a lot of their questions were, uh, were unanswered in my life. So I started taking uh, some philosophy and apologetics courses as an undergrad and found that uh, very helpful and, and beneficial for me and also for my teaching. So it was really kind of late in my, my undergrad years that I thought, you know, this, this area of philosophy um, is, is really helpful uh, for my own faith and, and for communicating to others. And, um, and then the other thing that was going on, so this, this would have been in the, the early 90s, is I was, uh, I was interested in spiritual formation. I was interested in this, this whole topic of how do, we, um, how do we make progress? Because actually my own crisis of faith was a bit of my own lack of maturity. Um, and, and kind of wondering whether, uh, how could Christianity be true? And yet um, there, I was seeing so little fruit in my own life, um, my own character. Uh, so, uh, so spiritual formation at that time, there were a lot of philosophers talking about it. People like Dallas Willard and, and J.P. Moreland, who was at Talbot and others. And so I, I kind of got into philosophy uh, really for my own um, uh formation uh, as a Christian and development as a Christian. And, and again, then began to see how these, these subjects were also helping other people in their own uh, growth. So how did I make it through? Yeah, I, I was single up until, well, let's see. 
Yeah, I was I, I was single for a good chunk of it, um, and I actually went to USC for for the first two years of my PhD before I went to Oxford, and um, and so I took a leave of absence from USC and went to Oxford and did it did the MPhil in philosophical theology with Swinburne, uh, and I I got married in in that first year at USC. And then my wife and I, uh, after a year of marriage, moved to England for two years, uh, did the MPhil together there. It was really good, I think, to be, uh, to be married in England. I think that time would have been uh, more difficult if I had been single. She, she, uh, she and I really kind of bonded uh, in our first year of marriage being overseas together in a different uh, setting. Um, and then we thought about staying on at Oxford for the DPhil with Swinburne but for various reasons decided to come back and finish the, the PhD at USC uh, under Dallas Willard. So that's what we did. Um, didn't have kids until um, a, a few years after I, fin I finished my PhD. And thankfully I, I landed a full-time teaching position, the, the one I'm still in now, um, right, right on the heels uh, of finishing my PhD. Um, so that, that was, that, kind of helped, uh, you know, ground us a bit to knowing where we were going to live and knowing that I had a job. And uh, then it was shortly after that time that we started having kids. So uh, we only have two kids and um, they're ones in high school and ones in middle school. And um, so I don't know, I, there were there are a lot of different things to say about how I survived, but that's kind of that's kind of how. So am I understanding this right, that both of you guys uh, got an MA in philosophy or did you only get it? Uh, I, no, just me. Yeah, okay. my, my wife, my wife uh, did go to Biola, but she didn't do any graduate work there. Yeah, I was just, it would have been interesting because I was like, that would be interesting being in the same program with your spouse and uh -huh. learning the same stuff. Like, you know, because yeah. like, do you agree? Do you disagree? What are the things that uh, yeah, become, yeah, yeah, yeah. become issues there? Um, <laughs> so it's very, again, very, very early in your, in your marriage. And, uh, you know, the first two years of marriage are, so difficult. Uh, I mean, all of it's difficult. Uh, and it takes a great deal of work, no question about that. But you're getting to know one another. And I know like all these really small, tiny arguments my wife and I would have when we were newlyweds. And I mean, to add on top of that, going to not just somewhere else, but going to a different country, different culture, and then being immersed in a pretty heavy kind of um, education. Uh, what are some tips you can give to some uh, newly married, newlywed couples? Well, uh, you know, I, I don't know if there's any one size fits all. You kind of, I think you have to find your, your own way through it. I think a lot of it depends on uh, the personality um, of, of the people involved and, and your own history together. And, and certainly the family dynamics that you bring into marriage, I think are so, um, so influential. Um, you know, one of the things when we went to Oxford, uh, my wife and I, I, I remember saying to her, I said, I said, you know, honey, I don't know that I can get a degree at Oxford and still have a healthy marriage. So if it ever becomes clear that um, our marriage is suffering, our relationship is suffering because of the, the pressure and the stress, then we'll just quit. And uh, we'll just chalk it up to, you know, six months in England or a year in England or whatever. And I'll just pull out of the program. And, and I, you know, and it, it was it was kind of what made that a little easier to say is I, I had this spot in my doctoral program at, at USC and, and that was going well. And we, and that's where, uh, you know, Southern California is where my wife's family is and, and where our community 
was and still is. And so, uh, so, so going to Oxford was really an experiment and we kind of took it, you know, one academic year at a time. Um, and I, I cut a lot of corners at Oxford in, in the sense of there, there was so much that I could have done in terms of classes and lectures and, and different uh, things, things to participate in that I, that I held back from for the sake of our marriage. So I, I, I really limited myself in a lot of ways to make sure that um, I was uh, there for my wife. I mean, she was, uh, again, we were both, you know, relocating and, and didn't have, didn't know anyone at first, you know, in, in Oxford. And, um, and so I wanted to make sure, you know, I had something to give myself to. And eventually she, she got a job actually fairly quickly, but it was a part-time job and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't really meaningful work. And so I, I could give myself all day, all evening, all night to what I was studying. I loved it, but I, I really tried to, to um, limit myself in ways that that were good for our marriage and so we we love indian food my wife and i both love indian food and, and there's great indian food in in the uk in general but but some really good places in oxford so some of my favorite memories some for both of us are we, we had this one indian food place right near our house and we'd order takeout and uh, we'd bring you know we'd bring bring it home and and there was some there was some american tv show i don't remember what it was but we were able to get it there and and we would have our indian food and watch um you know it might have been friends or i don't know something that was kind of a uh a, a, a show that was that was you know, kind of live at the time and uh, and we just had wonderful kind of nights together eating indian food <laughs> watching a little bit of american uh, tv and um and and of course conversation and whatnot so so that that i that is one piece that really i think was important for us is to make sure you don't allow your, or you don't let your academic pursuits and your education um, kind of overtake you and, and end up not dealing with things in, in your marriage or even with your kids uh, because of, you know, the academic life can be so consuming and so enjoyable in so many ways. Um, and then many times, even now, I, you know, I'd rather come home and keep reading a book than, you know, engage my kids. And so for me, it's, it's kind of constantly a, um, a discipline to, to, to kind of set that stuff aside. And, and, uh, and when I'm home, I, I try to be present uh, for my family. Yeah. Wise work. So many, so many of us in our culture, we prioritize our careers, um, you know, our, our jobs, academic stuff. And I, I did something very similar with, with my wife. I said, you know, if ever my work gets in the way of our marriage, if we realize that we just can't do this, I mean, we, let's say we see counseling and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Just let's just we'll do anything that's necessary to preserve our marriage. If we got to I got to quit my job and move away like we have to do it because that's at the topest uh, it's at the highest place priority wise is uh, is my family. And I think that kind of keeps you grounded as well. You, you realize what's important for you and what's not. So when things conf conflict with one another, um, then you you know the decision you're already gonna make because you've already made that decision previously. That's right. um, so that's just advice for for those and uh, who who are in in these places because it could be really challenging and difficult. I mean, I started Talbot a single guy, and by the time I graduated, I was married and I had a kid and another one on the way, and that was just it had all sorts of difficulties that it brought into. Uh, into my life and yeah they're, they're, look my grades suffered partly because of certain priorities and i'm okay with that i, I take that I'll do it all over again 
Um, so great advice. Let's let's talk about spiritual formation. And now you you teach at Talbot School of Theology, but also you teach at Rosemead, uh, which is the psychology department. Um, and so you're in the you're in theology and philosophy and psychology, like truly interdisciplinary and kind of stuff. Um, and we'll talk about that. Can you, I guess, briefly maybe define what spiritual formation is and is not? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's lots of different definitions that have been given. Um, I tend to go biblical uh, on these things. I mean, I think there's lots of phrases in Scripture that that are really helpful. So, you know, for instance, what is it, Romans eight twenty nine, where where Paul says that that um, those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. And so, I think you know, spiritual formation is conformity to the image of Jesus uh, through the work of the Holy Spirit. And and I think the I mean, one one thing I would add to that is, or a couple maybe nuances is, you know, to be conformed to the image of the Son. The the image, you know, the Greek word there is icon. It's 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 really it's really all of who Jesus is. The image of the Son. So it's not just to be conformed to to his external behavior, because of course Jesus' external behavior was came out of his inner life. And so he had a whole psychology, you know, he was a virtuous person. So, so if I'm going to be conformed to the image of Jesus, I need to become like him, not just in his outer life, but also in his inner life. I need to take on his beliefs, his values, his attitudes, uh, his emotional responses. So it really is a, a, a full bodied formation. And of course, also, it's not just imitate Christe. It's not just, I'm going to imitate Christ's behavior and imitate uh, his inner life. Um, uh, essential to Jesus's inner life was his relationship with the Father by the Spirit. So, so if I'm going to imitate Jesus, if I'm going to be conformed to His image, I need to imitate Him or be conformed, kind of all the way through, and and so uh, and all the way up, so to speak. So, so, uh, so we learn from Jesus the kind of interactive, interdependent relationship He had with the Father by the spirit that we too uh, are formed into uh, and that we make choices to develop. And that relationship uh, is the transformational core of our inner life uh, in order to take on the, 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 psych the psychology and the, and the dispositions and the, the attitudes and uh, the desires. Uh, more and more of our desires are conformed to to uh, the desires, uh, you know, the, the good and righteous desires that Jesus had. And of course that will, though it's not just automatic, but that will emerge in our behavior. And, and so we'll now be motivated and desirous uh, to bless those who curse us or to love our neighbor or to, you know, uh, turn the other cheek or whatever it is. And, and so, um, so, so I would say spiritual formation is that process of being conformed to the image of Jesus, which is a, a, a relational image and an internal image and an external image. And there's a deep interconnection between that relational life, that inner life and that outer life. And so we're, we're learning from Jesus by the spirit uh, what it means to, to live as he did. Um, and so I would, and that would be a very, you know, I would, say that's my same definition of discipleship. I think discipleship is an interactive learning process with the living, uh, resurrected person of Jesus 
by his spirit uh, and we're being trained, we're, we're disciples of Jesus and we're being trained uh, to live our lives uh, as, as he would live our lives if, if we were him. And so we can eventually, you know, or more and more say with St. Paul, uh, as Paul says in Galatians 2, that it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Uh, and and uh, so that Christ life is now uh, emerging more and more in us, the Christ way of life. So, so that's how I understand really Christian formation, spiritual formation understood as, as an explicitly Christian process. And of course, there is spiritual formation. Every, you know, Dallas Willard would always say, everyone gets a spiritual formation. It just depends, just, you know, the only thing that matters is, or just depends on what kind of formation you get. But everyone's spirit is being formed. And so in Christian formation, our spirit or our will is being formed uh, through interactive relationship with God through Jesus by the spirit. So that's that would be kind of how I would start. And I don't know, you asked what it's not. I mean, I guess it's it's not any of those other things, right? Anything that doesn't include that, it's not. Um, so again, there are other ways to be formed and there's even other God-given ways to be formed. Uh, and in some sense, those ways are, are consistent with Christianity. Um, I, I'm looking outside my window at the, how, the home of my neighbors who are, who are Jewish and, and there is a formation available within Judaism. And it's actually um, you know, not inconsistent in lots of ways with, with, with Christian formation, but, but my Jewish neighbors are, are, are not believers in Jesus. And so they are not, uh, the formation that they're receiving in their own Jewish life and practices uh, is not an explicitly Christian formation. They are not disciples of Jesus, at least yet, or at least as far as I know. And I've had some conversations over the years with them about that. So, um, so they are involved in a formation process and a lot of, of, of that process I can amen and, and, um, and I can learn from them because there are, there are choices they make and things that they do that positively form them in ways that I, that I need to do better at. So, so Christians have an explicit formation process uh, through the Holy Spirit, but uh, non-Christians uh, can also partake of formation. And, uh, and it's a kind of formation that, that we also need. So, so anyway, that, that gets into kind of- So would it, would it be fair to kind of say, since we're spiritual beings, that everything in our lives is participating in that kind of a formation? And even in the negative side, when, um, say, evil overtakes us or ungodliness overtakes us, that is a formation that is happening that is drawing us further and further away from God. And then if yeah. there's formation happening that is drawing us closer and closer to God, then that's what's happening. But everybody's getting formed spiritually in one way or another. That's right. And we might call the negative kind of formation deformation. And, and so... Yes, they're, 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 uh, we are being deformed in all sorts of ways, and we come into the world deformed on the Christian view, right? So, so we already have a, uh, we bear the consequences of the fall, and of course, not only do we come into the world um, as uh, deformed uh, persons with original sin, but then we, uh, we're not uh, parented perfectly, and so we're sinned against, as some people say, and not just by our our parents, but by our, our environment and other persons. And some people are sinned against in, in quite painful and, and destructive and intentional ways that can really do further damage to 
uh, to their spirits, to their souls, uh, and so and to their minds. And so uh, we we all we all get a deformation, and part of uh, the Christian life then is a reformation, um, a, a renovation, a, a restoration um, of 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 course at the core a restoration in our relationship with God through Christ by the spirit, but then an ongoing restoration that we sometimes call sanctification or, or spiritual formation, Christ, Christian formation. Um, so yes, I, but to go back to your question, Arthur, your point, yes, I agree. I, I think, you know, what the movies I watch, the books I read, the conversations I engage in, the thoughts I have when I go to bed, what I eat. I mean, it, it's all part of my, formation and your formation, those choices. Um, and of course, some of it is, is more or less germane or relevant to our, our moral and spiritual life, but, it, but it's all connected to some degree. I mean, you know, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, you know, do it all to the glory of God. So, so there's, there's something about human flourishing. There's something about, about living life uh, fully formed in the love of God, living life uh, more and more like Jesus would live uh, his our lives if he was us. Um, you know that that's that's connected up with our formation. And again, it's you know it's, some people might think, oh wow, that sounds like a huge burden all of my life. You know, but but really the other way to look at it is it's a it's a huge invitation. You know, it's an invitation into life as it was intended to be. Uh, you know, as as someone has said, you know, holiness, uh, Christian holiness is is wholeness. It's wholeness. It's integrity. It's it's having uh, the good life. It's it's again. It's what it's what God originally intended. And of course, my my view would be we, we can never get there fully this side of heaven, but we can approximate it, you know, more and more. And and that's and that's kind of the ultimate goal. You know, Paul says we press on towards the the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Well, the upward call in Christ Jesus is is to be conformed to His image, and that's. That's a whole life formation. So yeah, all of, all of all of life is a is a formation, and it's either a deformation or or a positive uh, reformation. I imagine there's probably some things that are you know fairly neutral. Uh, they're not they're not deforming us. They're not positively forming us. They're just kind of you know kind of the some of the the just the ins and outs of life. You know we don't want to over overthink uh, formation, but there are some things that are amoral or, or neutral in some ways. Yeah, uh, like whether your favorite ice cream is vanilla or strawberry. Right? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, so that, that probably isn't going to make a huge difference. But how much ice cream you eat and why you're eating it? Well, now we're now we're probably getting back into something. that yes, makes if, if every time you're stressed and you rush to the freezer and grab some ice cream, that might say something about your spiritual well-being. There, there's probably something in there for us. Yes, for sure. Food. I mean, food, of course, is is a huge idol, right? It's a huge place that we do turn turn to. I know I do uh, as a as a substitute for God. And 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 that's you know that's on the gluttony side. But but um, I think it's Rebecca Canondike de Young in her book Glittering Vices, which is a great book on this. She talks about you know glut the vice of gluttony can also be. Uh, not just the excess of food, but but controlling our intake um, and being very prideful about what we don't eat and how little we eat and kind of being overly scrupulous about about food. So it can go either way. It's not just overeating, but it can be under eating or, or and of course, that gets into eating disorders. But but there's ways to 
control our food intake that really are ways to try to be God rather than trust God. And food is a, you know, scripture talks about food all the time as a, as a, as a place where, where we can be, um, again, living life in a deformed way. Um, so yeah, food's a great, I think a great example of, of both positive formation and, and deformation. So one of the things that I've seen and I kind of struggle with, I could say, is seeing Christians who are extremely immature, okay, and specifically immature in their character. Yeah. Like they're just, you know, they might have been Christians for 20 years, and but they're just silly individuals. They don't take serious questions about life. Um, they don't consider them important. And then, and then non-believers who are very mature in these areas, but spiritually dead because they're non-believers. Um, like, how do we reconcile this with the, within this conversation of, hey, you can have unbelievers that look and actually live a more virtuous, a more holistic kind of life than believers, even though the believer will end up being in the presence of God, uh, you know, past this life. And then the unbeliever who's a more mature individual will not. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. Order. You know, I, I, I think, um, and there's lots to say there. Uh, I'll just kind of say something, I'll try to say something concisely and then if you, we can unpack it more, but I, I make a distinction between uh, uh, natural formation and, and supernatural formation. Aquinas had a, a similar kind of distinction though, though I'm going to take it in a slightly different way, but what I'm calling natural formation is um, it's not, uh, you know, uh, natural in, in the sense of naturalistic, uh, but it's natural in the sense of you don't need to believe in God. You don't uh, need to believe that the world is designed by God and that you are a, a, a made in the image of God uh, to, to partake of the benefits of, of how God designed the world. Um, and so we could call this common grace or you know, general revelation, natural moral law. But there are all sorts of ways that non-Christians and Christians can live well according to how God designed human persons to sleep, uh, to, to live. So a, a real simple example is getting good sleep. You know, my, my, my atheist friends or my, you know, Buddhist friends or whoever, they can get, they can get good sleep and I could have a sleep disorder or I could, you know, be in the habit of staying up way too late. And I'm going to suffer the negative consequences of not getting good sleep. By and large, God, even though I'm saved, you know, God by his spirit is not going to save me from the consequences of sleep deprivation. And I know you have, you know, younger children. I remember when my kids were young, I mean, sleep deprivation is horrible. I mean, you really, you really, um, it, it just kind of throws you psychologically and we're more, we tend to be more impatient. We tend to be more grumpy, you know, all sorts of uh, problems. Of course, you can have uh, physical problems as well from from sleep deprivation. So non-Christians can get better sleep than Christians and they'll benefit from it. God, you know, the rain falls on both the righteous and the unrighteous. Common grace is such that um, if you live according to how God designed human persons to live, and as long as the world cooperates, it doesn't always cooperate, but it's it's kind of, you know, proverbs and wisdom, right? It's, yeah, if you, if you live life in certain kinds of ways, you'll tend to flourish. Doesn't, it's not guaranteed, it's not automatic, but you'll tend to flourish. And, uh, and if, you, if you're a Christian and you're saved, but you make really foolish choices, and in fact, I think sometimes some versions of the gospel set people up for this. They think, well, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, the only information I need is the Bible, 
and they really don't pay attention to wisdom. They don't pay attention to uh, just you know the, the the kind of things you learn through life experience and the kind of things you learn oftentimes through through culture and through the best of 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 culture and the best of of, of various um, you know traditions around the world wisdom traditions. Uh, a lot of times Christians we we you know we preach the Bible, we teach the Bible, and we read the Bible. Uh, but we don't look to general revelation or natural moral law or common grace. And so we can be very uh, immature. Uh, and, and actually, as you were suggesting, I mean, sometimes, you know, Christians can be the worst people <laughs> to be with because they are so immature. They have immature marriages. They're not good parents. They're, they, they have explosive anger. They're arrogant. They're, um, you know, and, and they've baptized it all and sometimes even justified it. Uh, because of their Christianity, and they've even, you know, found some sort of verse in Scripture they've taken out of context to say, you know, this is just the way Christian men are, or something, and it's toxic masculinity, and and so Christians can be a huge turnoff. Whereas, again, the non-Christian, you know, for the non-Christian uh, wisdom, again, they don't think of it that way, but godly wisdom and 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 and, and general revelation for them, that's the only game in town. I mean, that's that's the only that's their only hope. And so oftentimes they do much better than we do at, at really focusing in on how to live life well. I remember one time, I'll tell the story and then I'll stop. But I remember one time, I, uh, actually it was my wife and I were getting married and we ended up buying uh, my wedding ring. It's not this ring, but my wedding ring from an artisan in Laguna Beach. And, uh, and he's a, he was a jewelry artist and, and we were, he was sizing my ring and the sun was setting and uh, my wife and I were standing there as he's sizing my ring. And he said, oh, hang, hang on a second. He said, follow me. And we walked out to the, to the bluff overlooking Laguna Beach. And, and he just wanted to watch the sunset. And we stood there with this, this jeweler for you know, just a few minutes as we watched the sunset. And, and then he said, and he just, he just kind of sighed. And he said, that's, that's so beautiful. And, and then he walked back into his jeweler, jeweler little uh, hut or kind of office. And he, I asked him about it. He did that every single night. Now he wasn't a believer, but I thought that's a that's a good way to live. He's appreciating <laughs> he's appreciating nature and beauty and the end of the day in a way that has formed his soul. He was a very peaceful man, uh, but but he was doing that in a way that that I don't. I still don't as a Christian. And that's a good practice, right? And there's a way to practice that as a non-Christian paying attention to nature and God's beauty. There's also a way to practice that as a Christian. And it would actually be more formational for me if I practice that regularly. But, but he gets a formation that I don't get uh, because he's made something, a, a habit or a discipline that I haven't. And uh, that's going to shape his soul in ways that it's, it's not going to shape my soul if I don't engage in, in, those, in those sorts of practices. Okay, so you mentioned habits and disciplines, and you're interchangeably using these terms. Um, what are, I guess, specifically, because, you know, like within Protestantism, uh, we, I would say, you know, it's like the main, the main three we talk about is reading your Bible, praying and being in fellowship, you know, and by fellowship, most of the time, we just mean attending church, which I personally don't think that's fellowship. Um, I, you know, when you attend the church and then when you're fellowshipping truly with individuals, uh, those are completely two different things. But uh, what are other practices that uh, or habits we can develop in our lives um, other than these three? Right. OK, I read the Bible, say, you know, right. Like I remember 
I went through Bible college and I, th I think I did pretty well in regards to developing habits of Bible reading and then studying my Bible, like asking all the right hermeneutical questions. And I remember there was a point where I was like, okay, I know this stuff. I can sit in church and the sermon, uh, you know, 10 minutes into the sermon, I'm like, I know where this guy's going to take this. Part of it is because I was preaching regularly and I, that's my world. And I was like, I, I know where this is going. And at those points, I realized there's something else I needed to supplement my Christian walk with. As a matter of fact, part of the reason why I took, uh, I took Theology One with you and the reason why I did is because it was like 90% spiritual formation uh, folk, uh, like students. And I had to get a special approval to join that class. Uh, but I had taken Theology One in Bible college. I'd taken all the theology classes. And I was like, okay, if I'm going to sit in a normal theology class, I already kind of know that stuff. I've, I've been through that. I have to take this here at Talbot. So I would prefer to do it with something that was, there, there's some additions to it that I'm not familiar with that's going to help me in my formation. And that's that's why I ended up in your class. So um, again, so some habits and practices or disciplines that we can implement into our lives where it will direct us, you know, as uh, the, the guy who mentors me says, into an awareness of the presence of God. Amen. Yeah. Well, uh, just to just to amen your your mentor. I mean, I, I think, first of all, that's that's the way to think about disciplines and habits is that their primary purpose is to direct us to uh, to attending to God in our lives and to, uh, you know, behold, as, as another spiritual writer says, beholding the one who beholds us and smiles. Right. So we want to or sometimes I'll say we want to avail ourselves, avail ourselves of the gracious and loving availability of God. So, so God by his spirit is always with us. So when Paul says, walk in the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Uh, well, walking in the spirit is, is activities. It's, it's practices, it's disciplines. How do I walk in the spirit? Well, I wake up in the morning and I don't grab my phone. Uh, I start the day, or at least one of my disciplines, one of my attempts at habituating life with God is instead of grabbing my phone, the first thing I want to do is I want to, I want to, and I'm using Romans uh, 12 right now that I, I say to God, I offer my body to you as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you, which is my reasonable service. So, so I just try to, I, I just take a moment and say, God, you know, what's the most reasonable thing for me to do today is to offer my body to you as a living sacrifice. So my body, my day, my life, and now how am I going to do that? What are my practices that keep me abiding in the vine, that keep me walking in the spirit? And, and so, Arter, on one hand, I would say, you know, what, what are these practices? Well, I think of um, 2 Peter chapter 1, where, where Peter, said, Peter says, we've been given everything we need for a life of godliness. And then he says a few verses down, he says, so make every effort, make every effort to add to your faith virtue and virtue knowledge and knowledge self-control. And then he goes on to say, if these qualities are yours and they're increasing, then you will not be ineffective or unfruitful. So he's talking about spiritual formation, Christian formation. He's talking about sanctification, but there's that make every effort. So, so again, Dallas Willard would always say, you know, people would say, what, what, what can I do to become more like Jesus? And Dallas would say, anything that helps. <laughs> right? Any, anything that helps. And so I think we really, I mean, what, what practices, what disciplines, anything that helps make every effort. Now, not everything's going to help though. And, um, and some things are going to help more. 
Um, and so I think there are practices that, that, that we all tend to need. Um, and certainly, you know, engaging scripture in some way, shape, or form is one that's going to be essential. Again, sometimes uh, in different seasons of our life, sometimes more or less, and, and different kinds of practices. I, I don't think just reading the Bible or even Bible studies, I mean, if, if that's too familiar to folks, that's probably not what they need. Um, so it's it's probably the ways to engage scripture are going to be ways that really, uh, again, as Paul says in Colossians 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So, so how can I let Christ's word dwell in me richly? So meditating on scripture. I find memorizing scripture is really helpful, but memorizing not to, you know, impress God or score points. But but again, memorizing to go back to what you said, to to kind of memorize scripture in the presence of God, where, where the scripture is now taking me into conversation with God. And I'm saying, you know, Lord, what did you mean by this? You know, well, I don't get this, you know, and dialoguing with the Lord and, and allowing scripture to become a relational interaction with God. Uh, certainly prayer and various kinds of prayer. I think we should take the Lord's prayer very seriously. You know, uh, two different times, it looks like on two different occasions, uh, Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, and he uses the Lord's Prayer. In Matthew, uh, he's teaching about prayer, and so he says, you know, when you pray, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven. So I, the Lord's Prayer is a deep and rich prayer, and I think it can be prayed meditatively, not just rotely, but where you can take the Lord's Prayer and just, just start with our Father and just and just sit with that for a while and, and talk about how you understand and, and talk to God about it. Just say, you know, God, you're my father and you're not just my father, you're our father. And I pray, Lord, you'd father my wife today. I pray you'd father my son. And, and Lord, what does it mean to be a father? And, and how do I need your fathering today? And so you can just spend, you know, five, 10 minutes perhaps with the our father and then move on to who art in heaven. So prayer, scripture reading, I think solitude, um, going into solitude for most of us is essential. Uh, there just won't be space in our life to really focus on our life with God if we don't get off by ourselves. And I, I find going for a walk and particularly outside at a park or someplace like that uh, can, is very helpful. And I take a, along a little, couple pieces of paper and a pen and, and maybe a, a three by five card with a scripture passage on it. And I just spend time kind of praying. And, and if I can talk out loud, that oftentimes really helps me. So any ways we can engage our body uh, in, in prayer and in, in worship, in, in meditation, I think is, can be very helpful. So, but again, anything that helps, and, and, and another big category I haven't mentioned, but obviously essential is the body of Christ. And, and I agree with you, Arthur, that going to church is, is going to church and actually getting what you, you need from fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, unfortunately, uh, are, are far too often two completely, two completely different practices. And it's far too easy. And it's not just the local church's fault. It's often our own posture, but it's far too easy for me to go to my local church on a Sunday morning and Let's see. Sorry about that, guys. We're going to wait for Dr. Porter to rejoin us um, here, but it's extremely important that uh, we 
uh, put in these disciplines that he's speaking about uh, that we um, think we got him back. There he is. Yeah. Sorry, I don't know what occurred there. So I can't hear you. We can't hear you. So you might be. Let me see. Actually, no, that's. My uh, I can't hear you now, Arthur. Okay, we're good here. Okay. Uh, okay anyway, so. I think the last thing I was saying is is going to church and fellowship are two different things, which you already said. <laughs> yeah. Um, so th that that requires a great deal of uh, transparency, right? Um, because people in the church come from all sorts of different backgrounds and ideas, and, and some folks have a formation that's happened uh, that is better and more mature than others. And so the interaction of this, again... It's much easier to kind of ignore that than actually like face it and then say, as difficult as it is, the individual in front of me is like God's put them there for my own good, right? Like, and I, I go back to God will use everything for the good of those who love him. It's like, so that, that's kind of the filter and the lens that I look. Um, and then when I think about other people being difficult, I, I regularly try to re remind myself of how difficult I am to other pe other people uh because uh you know i mean that's just the reality we we are uh difficult um and in the modern world you, you said something about science and solitude i suppose this is more true of us in i would i don't want to say the modern world but specifically maybe living in los angeles living in cities where yeah. it's like everything is just moving and everything's moving really really fast um, and so every opportunity we get, we ought to uh, separate it and kind of, uh, you know, deal with it in that sense. Let's let's talk a little bit about psychology. I mean, you mentioned common grace or about general revelation, things God has revealed. And it doesn't seem to me that Christians have an issue when it comes to, you know, the heart doctor or, uh, you know, whatever kind of uh, knowledge we can get. It It doesn't matter, right? Like if I'm having a heart attack... Um, I don't ask my doctor, are you a Christian? Um, you know, you have to be a Christian to operate on me. Uh, none of this. But when it comes to other things that have to do with kind of the immaterial part of our existence, right? Um, say like the psychological aspect. I've seen Christians be very hesitant to this because because it's not physical. You could say everybody thinks it's spiritual um, and then says, no, we're going to reject that. So what are things, those wisdoms you were talking about that God's revealed to us that we can gain from, even gain from, obviously, from unbelievers who've figured this stuff out really well? Um, and how can we implement that into our spiritual formation uh, to bring about healing, to bring about kind of a wholeness? Because plenty of us are um, are damaged or are hurt in all sorts of ways. Yeah. No, that's good, Archer. Um, yeah, I, I, I think the thing to, to start with is, is again, just to get clear that, that there is um, a way to, for anyone to just observe and pay attention to how God designed the world. And again, looking back in Proverbs and the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, we see this all over the place where, you know, the writer of Ecclesiastes is paying attention to what makes life meaningful? And, and it's, it's actually, you know, Ecclesiastes is this kind of um, trial and error, right? Where he, well, let me try this. No, that's, that's, that's empty. Let me try this, though, that's empty, right? And he eventually 
kind of comes to to insight but but we all are, are in that process and so what psychology is psychology as a discipline is is really stealing you know so to speak from from the christian wisdom tradition it's what psychologists have done again they wouldn't they, they don't see it this way but what, what they've done their methodology is just to be very careful about observing the patterns of, of human psychological interaction, whether it's, whether it's kind of our own uh, psychology and, and how we function emotionally and relationally, or you know, relationships between couples or, or parents and children or um, you know, bosses and employees. I mean, anyone can pay attention and, and have experience and become very thoughtful and wise about this, this is a better way to deal with that parenting situation than that. So what psychologists do, you know, when they're at their best, and they're not always at their best, just like any, any field that pays attention to the natural world and tries to develop principles or uh, ideas and theories about how things tend to work best, you know, psychologists make errors. And, and, and of course, some psychologists make errors in their judgments or their interpretations of parenting or or marriage relationships or emotional life. They make errors because they're coming at it from, from, an, from a naturalistic worldview. And so there, are, there can be problems, but, but that we don't wanna throw the baby out with the bathwater. And so we, we look at psychologists and, we, and there's a lot of Christian psychologists that are, that are integrating their faith with psychology. But we, we look at a psychological theory or idea as a Christian and we say, well, what, what might there be here that is really part of God's truth? And I think it, many times, at least in my experience, we find, oh, there's a lot about this particular psychological you know, perspective or outlook that's really helpful uh, for me to integrate as a Christian. It's, it's, not, it's not inconsistent with my Christianity. It's, it's part of God's, again, general revelation. And it just so happens that you know, a non-Christian psychologist is the one who's the leading you know, proponent of it. I mean, there's, there's psychologists right now studying gratitude, for instance, and, and gratitude practices. And lo and behold, it turns out that people who practice gratitude, there's all sorts of psychological benefits. And of course, we knew that already from a Christian perspective. But if there's things that the, the psychological researchers are learning about gratitude, that can be helpful for me as a Christian to, to be grateful to God and be grateful to others and, and ways to practice that, that'll actually be uh, beneficial for my own life with God and my own life as a Christian, then again, I want to learn from the, the psychologists who are studying things like gratitude or humility or forgiveness. And so there's a lot of psychologists who are studying uh, Christian concepts. And even though they may not be studying them in explicitly Christian ways, uh, as Christians, we can benefit from what they're learning. Uh, we do have to approach it you know, critically. And, and, and again, we don't have to do that all by ourselves. There's, there's a whole world out there of, of, of Christians working in psychology who have knowledge of, of both uh, their faith and the discipline of psychology, and, and they can help you know, us sort through some of these things. But, um, but I just think it's, it's, it's you know, uh, I, I, there's a whole historical reason why Christians, particularly conservative Christians, uh, can be you know, cautious about psychology. But Really, if you, if you think about it, it's it's it, it just makes complete sense, and we do it as you mentioned, Arthur. We did it. We do it in all these other areas. You know, I, I don't I, I don't have any doubts that non-Christian dentists 
know a lot about teeth and non-Christian you know, cardiologists know a lot about my heart. And so why would I think that non-Christian psychologists um, somehow are completely in the dark when it comes to how, how the human person works emotionally and relationally? It's just, it's just you know, again, they, there might be distortions there. There, there, ha- there. there are, there are things to be critical of, but it can't be that there's nothing to learn, that we can just kind of wholesale reject the whole discipline. That, that just doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah, especially understanding the way God's made us and, uh, you know, how we have these different components in us. Um, one of the things that has been uh, important for me, and I actually remember thinking through these things and saying, oh, man, th- this is just true, is um, is how, how our family has formed us and kind of the way we view God through the lenses of, uh, of whether it's our society or specifically our family. Um, one thing that really stood out to me, and again, th- this was actually one of the benefits of taking taking class with you, uh, was how we will take the way our fathers generally are, or if our fathers aren't there or um, or are abusive, uh, and then project that onto God. Yeah. And then we have this, this image, uh, we have this God image, kind of uh, misinformed God image. And so, pr- and then, I've seen Christians living life, trying to pray and having an extremely hard time in their prayer life, not because it's hard to pray, not because they don't know what to say, but because they have a misinformed or ill-formed image of who God is. You know, if every time they think they do wrong and God is, you know, hiding around the corner to smack them upside the head, it's going to be very difficult to approach God. And then when you start asking some questions, it's like, oh, wait. Every time I did wrong, my dad smacked me upside the head. This this is way too close to each other. So what are other than that, other than, say, our fathers, right? Which is a, I don't want to say typical one, but it's, it's a common one. Maybe it's an easier one. What are some other ways that we are formed that ends up either benefiting or harming our relationship with our Heavenly Father? Yeah, good. Yeah, I, I, I think... You know, there's a whole area in psychology called attachment theory, and 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 so what attachment theory says about this is that we are deeply formed, particularly by our early relational experiences, and that can be both with father or mother. It can be grandparents, aunts and uncles. It's it's uh, older siblings. It's whoever uh, was around and had a lot of interactive kind of contact with sorry me. when you say early what do you like how early are we talking well, good and this is where my own knowledge is a little bit blurry but i mean and there's going to be different developmental stages here but the, certainly the first two or three years of life are really significant in terms of uh again what we understand to be happening the kind of imprinting going on uh about how relationships work uh, but 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 then of course at, at again different developmental windows all throughout life. I mean there there are people. I mean even of course even in our adult years we can experience a kind of relational betrayal that might be you know unheard of in our relational history previous to that. But it can really throw us in a way. I mean it's particularly a spouse. You know if someone uh, goes through a, a situation where their spouse is you know unfaithful or or and 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 it can really. Um, even though they've had all these years of, of faithfulness, they, this one experience can really throw them in terms of their ability to trust again. So, so in, in one sense, it, it's, it can be relational experience at any stage of life, but it's particularly, psychologists tell us, 
and again, it kind of makes sense developmentally, right? That in these early years, our brains are forming, our souls are forming. And, and so we're learning. And, and if you think about it, again, we don't even have to go to psychology. It's just common sense that, I mean, where's, where is the first place where we learn about authority, where we learn about, you know, how people respond when, when we don't do what we're supposed to, where we learn about what, what care and love feels like and what forgiveness and grace feels like. I mean, all the attributes of God, his authority, his power, his love, his grace, his forgiveness, his goodness. We learn all of those things before we even know anything about God, really, right? We learn in how our parents pick us up when we cry and how our parents verbally respond to us, the tone of their voice uh, when, we, when we don't do what they've asked us to do. We're, we're learning from the earliest ages everything about what authority is, what disobedience is, what love is, what forgiveness is. And, and our parents and our early relational environment, it's a, it's a mixed bag. And as you said, Arthur, I mean, sometimes we get, we get parented pretty well in certain ways, but none of our parents were perfect. I'm a parent, I'm not perfect. And so my kids get a mixed experience of, of what love is or what forgiveness is. I, I might say I forgive them, but still hold a grudge or still kind of think, you know, but you better never do that again because you embarrassed me. And, and my own shame, my own uh, unprocessed kind of, uh, you know, immaturity gets projected onto my kids. So now my son or my daughter's experience of forgiveness is forgiveness doesn't, it, it doesn't really feel like I've been freed up because when dad forgives me, he, um, he kind of still holds some resentment back because he's still embarrassed and, and ashamed of me. And so forgiveness feels sticky. And so now when my son or my daughter hears that they've been forgiven by God, that might not feel like good news. It might, it, it might feel like, well, what's so great about forgiveness? Because forgiveness is kind of sticky. God forgave me, but he still, he still kind of, he's still mad at me. He still resents me or he's embarrassed by me. So, so I, I better try hard to be good or something. So even with God now, their, their experience of forgiveness is not the full gospel truth of forgiveness because they're interpreting God through their relational history, which has been deformed by me as a parent. So, so now they're going to need, and, and again, I'm, I'm sure, you know, if you think about it, we've all had these experiences where we thought we knew what it was to be forgiven. And then we have someone, and I'm just using forgiveness as an example, but you know, then we have someone really forgive us, right? I mean, we, you know, maybe in marriage or something, we think, oh my gosh, there's no way you can forgive me for this. You, you know, and then my wife does. And it's not that kind of sticky forgiveness that I learned, you know, maybe in, in growing up, uh, but it's that really free forgiveness where, where she has, you know, maybe with God's help, she just is able to love me unconditionally or as, as close as possible to a human can do that. And I say, oh my gosh, now I understand so much better God's forgiveness, right? So, so my own kids now are going to have to experience, you know, what it is like to really experience this kind of unconditional forgiveness that God has, because that's what's transformational. The kind of sticky, resentful, I forgive you, but really I'm still holding on to a grudge. That that's not transformational. That's that's actually, I mean, that's that's just gonna, you know, it's better than 
no forgiveness, I guess, but, but barely. And um, so that's, that would be how our kind of early and even later relational history can both, can both deform us, but also then uh, be part of, of God's transformation where, where we're healed is, I think you use that word healed. We can be kind of healed in some of these ways in relationship with other people. Yeah. Um, so finally, I guess we'll end with this uh, question is you mentioned that it's, it's not just imitating Jesus. It's not just doing these external kind of stuff, but um, that Jesus, we live life with Jesus, right? Uh, now, not everyone is in ministry. Not everyone is in kind of this Christian world where we're constantly thinking about this, right? So I think about Think about my own brother. My younger brother is a is a lineman, right? Like so, he's he's working on power lines all day, every day, and maybe he's not reflecting on um, on a lot of these things, and he doesn't have the time to sit down. But but Jesus still is there with him, you know. Um, so what does that look like in conversationally, right? Not just like Jesus help me be safe as I go and I'm going to deal with this thousands of volts of electricity, right? Like, like that, yes, that's there. But um, so what would be some, some advice as to living life with Jesus in a conversational sense? Yeah, I think that's such an important question. Uh, and again, I, 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 I tend to just kind of go to a grounding passage in scripture, but Matthew 11, 28, 29, where Jesus says, come unto me, all who are weary, heavy laden, take my yoke or my way of life upon you and learn from me and, and you'll find rest for your soul. So I, I think what we want to do is we want to, we want to see our relationship with Jesus that, that he's still in the business of taking on disciples. And, and so we're disciples, we're students, learners of Jesus. And so if, if I'm working in electricity or I'm working in, you know, construction, or I'm working as a elementary school teacher, or I'm driving my kids to soccer, I, I want to learn from Jesus and everything I do. And and so to actually kind of begin to see Jesus um, as, as someone who, who knows what it's like to live human life. And even though Jesus wasn't an electrician, uh, he wasn't, uh, you know, he never took his kids to soccer practice. Still, Jesus lived a, a perfect human life. He knows what it is to be human. And so I think what we want to do is we want to dialogue with Jesus uh, thinking that he knows how to live my life given what I do well he knows how to to live that life in the kingdom of god through the holy spirit so so i just want to talk to jesus about that i just want to say you know i remember i was working on my car one time i was trying to fix um the door handle and i was getting very frustrated very uh, uh, angry it was uh, it was hot and and i just remember just something kind of stopped me in that moment and i realized jesus you're with me right now and and you actually can see where this bolt is and 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 I can't see it and I can't get this nut on this bolt but but Lord you can see it and it wasn't so much you know Jesus help me supernaturally get the nut on the bolt but it was Jesus you're with me you care about me fixing my car door so I can actually get into my car you 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 um you can understand what I'm doing and I want to do this with you and it was amazing how just kind of recognizing the presence of God through Jesus with me and that Jesus cared and that he actually understood what I was doing. It, it really, I mean, I'm sure if I'd had a blood pressure monitor on, I bet my blood pressure literally dropped. You know, I found rest 
for my soul, for my being, because I was no longer alone. I, I had this deep sense that, you know, this is going to be okay. Even if I don't get the, the nut on the bolt, it's not the end of the world. And, and I'll figure it out. And if I don't figure it out today, you know, it'll be tomorrow. And maybe I need to get help. And, and I did get that nut on that bolt, you know, not too long after that. But, and maybe Jesus did supernaturally help me. I don't know. But whether he did or didn't, um, practicing the presence of God, to take that uh, line from Brother Lawrence, practicing the presence of God, that itself is, is the transformational moment. And then um, oftentimes when we're, when we're working with God, then he does join himself and his power to us uh, in various ways so that, that things are accomplished in and through what we do that wouldn't be accomplished otherwise because God by his spirit is actually acting in and through us. And so now there are effects and there are things that, that happen in life. Um, because we're actually cooperating with him. Um, so so that, that's, I would just encourage us all to, to you know, just re remind ourselves, and this goes back to those disciplines, uh, time and time again, yes, Lord, you're with me. I, I use the prayer of the Canaanite woman. This is the woman that comes to Jesus and she just says, Lord, help me, Lord, help me. And so that just throughout my day, I wanna just turn my palms up and say, Lord, help me. And um, that, that helps me kind of recalibrate to the reality that, that he'll, he's always with us. Amen. Amen. So as we finish, I'm going to put links to your books and books you've uh, uh, you've won. One of them you've authored, which is, I think, your dissertation, which is sort of I'm assuming more of a technical book. So for all those technical, you know, philosophy nerds, you can you can go read that one. Uh, but you got a number of uh, books you've edited uh, and uh on the issue, uh, somehow related to the issues that we're talking about. Um, now, there's five of them that I'm looking at, unless you've written more recently that aren't on what I'm looking at. Um, if someone were to pick up one of these, right? They're like, okay, I want to, I want to read one of these books. Which one would you recommend that they read? Well, if one of the ones you're looking at is the one um, on spiritual formation in Dallas Willard, um, I edited a book. Uh, so is this um, until Christ is formed in you? That's the one. Yeah, that's probably the one I'd recommend. Okay. So until Christ is formed in you, Dallas Willard and spiritual formation. Okay. Uh, so I, I, again, I'll put the, the links to, to these up. And if there's articles uh, that are available for people to, to read, because we've written quite a bit of those. Um, I always enjoy articles because it doesn't take the time commitment that books take. Uh, and you get kind of a general understanding of subject and you say, hey, if I want to study this in depth, then I'll pick up a book. Uh, so we'll get those in, in the description box. Um, again, I want to stress the importance of this. Uh, this is just coming out of my own experience, especially for some of those nerdy, heady folks like myself. It's, it's, it might be a bit easier to come across the answers and stick your head in a book and enjoy being there. But it's extremely important to invest into our personal experience, uh, personal relationship with God and in relationships just outside of that, especially with the people of God that are going to form us and change us. Um, and again, I go back, God, God has an intention. God, God has an intended purpose of what he wants to see in us kind of. I always go back to Jesus saying, I give life and life more abundantly. So I'm always like, okay, what does that look like? Like, what does 
an abundant life look like in my life? Does that mean I'm just like joyous and happy even in the midst of, you know, difficult times? Am I enjoying every moment? Like I want that and it's available, but not all the time do I know what that looks like to get there, right? Like uh, what are these things I need to do? But it's extremely important. I think God has uh, uh, in that sense, the best uh, for us. Um, it might take some work. It might take some effort, obviously, to get there. So, and I want to thank you for this. I want to thank you for this conversation. It's it's been it's been awesome. And for our audience, uh, I hope that this, if you haven't been thinking about this, this is the start of your journey to think in, in this area and and start practicing and bringing about disciplines into your life. Uh, if you have any questions, you can always email those. You can write in the comment section. Um, and then we'll try to answer them in the in the best possible ways. And if we get enough questions, maybe we can have Professor Porter back on to answer a number of those questions if that's uh, if that's a possibility. I want to thank you guys. I want to God bless you. If you're watching the replay on this, God bless you even more uh, because it's again always amazes me that people will sit down and watch replays of an hour long interview. So take care. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.